Hello, my name's Catherine Carr. I'm the podcast producer. Welcome to a special edition of Talking Politics. This week's episode is a recording of a recent lecture given by David Runciman called How Democracy Ends. He argues that if democracy fails in the 21st century, it'll be in ways that are new and surprising. David and the panel will be back next week. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of books and ideas. We've already had some LRB writers on this podcast and we'll have some more soon. There's a reading list of pieces to accompany the podcast at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking, along with a special subscription offer for Talking Politics listeners. 12 issues of fearless, expansive, elegant writing for just £12. This public lecture was recorded at Churchill College in Cambridge and is based on David's new book, also called How Democracy Ends. It will be published in the spring. At some point, democracy will end. So the first three words of my book are nothing lasts forever and nothing does last forever. At some point, some generation of human beings are going to discover that this way of doing politics no longer works, no longer delivers, has been replaced by something better, ceases to function. It might not be us, but it could be us. And whoever it is will be surprised to discover that this thing that they have grown up used to as the default of their politics is winding down. And I think it could be us. And when I say generation, there are many generations in this room, so we cover a broad span, but um, some of us in this room may well live to see the end of democracy. I think it's a real question. I have to be honest. Part of the provocation was the election of Donald Trump. Um, There is a phrase that slightly sounds pretentious, phrase in philosophy that um, when an argument reaches its reductio ad absurdum, that is, when you ask a question and you get an absurd answer, you have to conclude there's something wrong with the question. So if the answer to the question is Donald Trump... And the question is, democratic election, there's something wrong with the question. But it's not just about Trump. I'll say a bit more about him later. It's about our politics. And by our politics, I'm talking about democracies in places where democracy is very well established. I think the vulnerability of democracy in different parts of the world is a constant feature of the history of the last 100 years. And, of course, there are many parts of the world that have never been democracies. But I'm talking about societies like ours, like this one, like the United States, like not just Western Europe, but much of Europe now, and other places too, like Japan, India, elsewhere. All those places around the world that have grown used to democracy believe that it functions and delivers. In many of those places, democracy has become fractious, contentious, partisan, dysfunctional. It's partisan in a world where political parties are no longer working. I mean, this odd feature of our politics that we become more partisan as we become less attached to political parties. And there must at least be the possibility that while we're all screaming at each other, the real problems go unaddressed. And if that's true, then democracy is not working. I mean, the things that could really be catastrophic for all of us, they may not be caused by failures of democracy, but if democracy fails to address them, democracy has failed. So I think it's a real question, how does democracy end? But that's not my main motivation for writing the book or what I'm going to talk to you about this evening. I think we have the wrong framework for answering that question. I think it's understandable 
that our framework is drawn from the history of modern democracy. And by the history of modern democracy, I think this thing that we call democracy is not that old. I don't think it goes back to the founding of the American Republic. You can't found a democracy on slavery. I don't think in the British case it goes back to the 19th century. I think it's about 100 years old. I'm talking about universal franchise, mass political party, electoral democracy of the kind that we've had in this country since really the end of the First World War and has gradually spread over those 100 years around the world. That kind of democracy has had many periods of failure in its 100-year history. And so it is entirely understandable that when we try and imagine in our minds what would it be like for a democracy like ours to fail, we go back to the points where it has failed. So you will be aware, and there, I'll give you a few examples, but there are countless examples of this, that when people try to think about what would it mean for our democracy to fail, one of the shorthands they use is it would mean going back to the 1930s. You hear that a lot. There are basically two decades from the 20th century that get pulled into this argument, the 1930s and the 1970s. The 30s for obvious reasons, but the 70s, the 70s were when Spain, Portugal, Greece, European democracies as we think of them now, were under military dictatorships. The 1970s was when democracy collapsed in Latin America. It was the Pinochet coup. Democracy collapsed in Asia. Nascent democracies collapsed in Africa. The 1970s is one model, but the 1930s is the kind of defining model. And you hear this talk everywhere. So I'll just give you a few examples. I first noticed it uh, at the height of the Euro crisis in 2010, 2011. So Nicolas Sarkozy, when he was president of France, trying to persuade Angela Merkel to relax her strict stance on collectivized European debt, said, if we don't solve this problem, Europe will go back to the 1930s. More recently, in the last two to three years, this has been said all the time. And with the election of Donald Trump, it's become a kind of trope of our public life. My colleague in Cambridge, Professor Richard Evans, um, I'm sure many people will have read his books, The Great Historian of the Third Reich. In a careful, measured, but serious way, he has made the case that we have to recognize the parallels between the collapse of the Weimar Republic and the election of Donald Trump. A fuller version of that argument is another very prominent historian of the 20th century, a man called Timothy Snyder, who's based in the United States, and he published earlier this year a, a seriously best-selling book called On Tyranny, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century, in which he makes the case that if we do not learn the lessons of the 1930s, we will repeat the mistakes. And he has many memorable lines in that book, one of which is, post-truth is pre-fascism. And I'm going to argue to you that it's not. John le Carré at a literary festival recently, I just, you, you, once you start looking for these things, they're everywhere. So John le Carré was recently asked, <coughs> what does the present moment remind you of? And he said, it's obvious we are reliving the 1930s. And then about two weeks later, Martin Amis, a very different kind of writer, was at a literary festival, and he was asked a similar question. And he said, I hate those Trump-Hitler comparisons. They're so wrong. Trump is Mussolini. Actually, if Trump is anyone, he's Berlusconi, and that's different. <laughs> but it's not just historians, it's not just politicians, it's not just novelists. There is a kind of mode of political science in which this is baked into how people think about the failure of democracy. 
when political, and I should say I'm a historian, I'm not a political scientist, when political scientists talk about what it is for a democracy to fail, the term they use is backsliding. It's almost a technical term in political science. Because what they imagine is that a democracy that fails reverts back to the time before democracy could succeed. And part of the reason they do that is, I would say for the last 50 years, the central question of political, society, of political science has been, how on earth does democracy work? Because it seems like such an unlikely system of government. People have to trust each other. They have to buy into it. The rich have to trust that the poor won't take their money. The soldiers have to trust that the civilians won't take away their guns. All these people who could bring it down have to agree not to bring it down. So you build this fragile system in which all of these players who have strong incentives to bail out don't bail out, and somehow you lock them together. And political scientists have spent about 50 years trying to work out what makes that happen, and there are lots of competing answers to do with institutions and historical accidents and so on. But when it works, something magical happens. It's like alchemy. And so the assumption is when it unravels, it falls apart. It slides back to the period before there was trust in democracy. The rich bail out. The soldiers with the guns don't hand them over to the civilians. They, they lock up the civilians using their guns. That the undoing of democracy is a going back to the beginning of the story. That's how political scientists imagine the failure of democracy. I think all of these perspectives are wrong. And I think it's a huge mistake to think in these terms. Because if we think democracy will fail in the ways it failed in the 20th century, we will miss the ways it's failing in front of our eyes. Because I promise you, and if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I promise you it will not fail in the ways it failed in the 20th century. It will fail in new ways. And we have to think about the new ways it might fail or we will miss them. And it will have failed long before we noticed it had failed because we were looking for Hitler. So that's my argument here. And I'm going to lay it out over a series of comparisons and points and then I'm really happy to take your questions. So I'm going to give you four or five reasons why I think that framework is wrong. Some of them are based on historical evidence. Some of them are based on my sense of how things are going. But I think cumulatively, I hope cumulatively, it adds up to a, a strong case. The first is my feeling about this, rather than a, a set of evidence I can lay before you. But I think that that political science model, that what happens when a 21st century democracy fails is that it reverts back to a time before people believed in it, misses the likelier possibility in the 21st century, which is not that we will cease to trust in democracy and we will bail out, we will pull out, but that we will carry on trusting in it long after it has ceased to work. I think that's a much bigger danger, that we will, these institutions that we are comfortable with, we think we know how they ought to work, elections, a free press, the rule of law, and they retain their form so that we can believe that this is still a democracy, long past the point where it's delivering the things that we want a democracy to deliver. And that seems to me to be consistent with the things that are currently challenging democracy, particularly the phrase that's often used about a lot of the contemporary anger in our politics, which is it's been driven by a kind of populist anger, a populist rage. What populism is, is not a direct assault on democracy. Populists do not say democracy does not work. 
Donald Trump does not say that. Modi doesn't say that in India. Even the, the really illiberal Democrats in Eastern Europe, in Poland, in Hungary, do not say that. They don't say it's stopped working. They say it's been stolen from us and we're going to take it back. It's been stolen from the people by the elites, by the foreigners, and we're going to take it back. We are going to return it, not to the time before it worked, but to the time when it worked. We're going to give you your democracy back. These people are not attacking democracy, and yet they could well be killing it. And so that kind of assault on democracy is a challenge to it, not in full view, in plain view, in the way it was in the 1930s, frankly. It is people defending democracy, but hollowing it out. And there must be a risk, and Trump, and maybe what comes after Trump will exemplify this, for instance... I think it's much likelier that Trump will be succeeded by a more conventional politician than a more outlandish politician, but that nonetheless this progressive hollowing out or emptying out of democratic institutions is the failure, and yet as it fails, democracy still functions and its defenders are still everywhere. The second reason why we're not going back to the 1930s, it sounds trite, but it's really important, is that the difference between us and the 1930s is that we know what happened in the 1930s, and they didn't. And people say you don't learn from history, but you do. Some people do. And lessons were learned. And the crucial lesson that was learned were the lessons that were learned at the time of the financial crisis in 2007, 2008, which underpins a lot of contemporary discontent with democracy. We're still living with the legacy of that crisis. But the reason that the crisis of 2007, 2008, which again, at the time, everywhere people were saying, this is a rerun of the early 1930s, we're about to embark upon a Great Depression. The reason that that didn't happen is that the lessons, including the economic lessons of that period, were applied to prevent it from happening. So Ben Bernanke, who ran the Federal Reserve, was an expert on the economics of the Great Depression in the 1930s. And in a sense, he knew what to do. And that's why what we're living through now is not the 1930s. What we are living through now is something for which there is no historical precedent. So what we're living through now is the period of quantitative easing and zero interest rates, or very near zero interest rates, basically flooding the economy with money, creating new kinds of asset bu bubbles, driving new forms of inequality. There is no historical precedent for the period we're living through. So if you want to know what happens when quantitative easing fails, you've got to guess, because nobody has a clue. But I can guarantee it will not be a rerun of the 1930s, because there's nothing like that in the 1930s or in the 1970s. It could be anything, frankly, I'm a historian. History is no guide. Then the third reason, and this is the one I want to spend a bit more time on, which is more based, in a sense, on evidence. Um, the third reason why I think it's a mistake to think we've got to look at the historic frame of democratic failure to understand democratic failure is that our societies, in ways that I don't think we sufficiently appreciate, are completely different from our societies in the 1930s. So the reason I think that we miss this, and there's a kind of illusion of continuity, we think about, so democracy very nearly did fail in America in the 1930s. It very nearly failed in Britain in the 1930s. It did fail just about everywhere else, not in other parts of the Commonwealth, but it failed across Europe. Um, 
the number of democracies that were left at the end of the 1930s, you could count on two hands. But if you take, say, Britain and the United States, societies that in the 1930s came right to the edge of the abyss, in many ways, we look as though we resemble those societies because most of the political and institutional arrangements are the same. I mean, there's, in some ways, there's extraordinary continuity between our politics and the politics of our societies 50, 70, 80, 100 years ago. So some things which are astonishing in their continuity are if you took someone from the 1930s and showed them our politics now in Britain or in the United States, they would say, but those are the same two political parties. It's what? 80 years and it's Labour versus Conservative? 80 years and it's Democrats versus Republicans? You haven't even changed the names? What? The institutions look the same. Take someone from the beginning of the 20th century and show them our politics. They say, but the House of Lords is still there. And you ha you've sort of tinkered with it, but seriously, show them the American. And they say, but you're still using the Electoral College. Like, it didn't work 100 years ago. You know it'll end in disaster, right? They, that system doesn't work. The politics is relatively unreformed. Of course, things have changed. The franchise has changed. People have, who had paper votes have real votes now. Um, the ways in which some of the democratic institutions have changed. But the, the democratic institutions are uncannily similar in societies that are just completely transformed. So I think the illusion of continuity is in the political sphere. Human beings are the same too. I don't think we're that different from people who lived 100 years ago. And our political institutions are remarkably similar. But our societies, our social arrangements... They're nothing like, and particularly in the ways that impact on how democracies fail. So let me give you some, some practical examples, and then I'll talk through some real-world cases. So I think there are three basic differences between our societies and the world of 70, 80 years ago. The first of which is those were very violent societies by contemporary standards, and ours, by any historical standards, are the most peaceful societies in human history. <laughs> It's a very contentious subject, the decline of violence. People argue about it a lot. A lot of people instinctively feel that cannot be true because our societies feel very violent. And there is a lot of violence that we see all the time. How can anyone say that America is a less violent society when someone walks into a church in Texas and just kills the people who are there? And then there's a mass shooting in Las Vegas and then there are terrorist incidents here and in Europe. And we see these things, and it feels like there is violence all around us. We see more violence than we would have done in the 1930s. We experience much less violence, much less. And that's true of politics, too. The first half of the 20th century, even through to the 1970s, politics was much more violent than it was now. When people say, America risks rerunning the collapse of the Weimar Republic, but the collapse of the Weimar Republic was just shot through with political violence, routine political assassination, mass murder, killing on the streets. And whatever we think about American politics, it's not that now. There are these pockets of terrible violence. So one of the striking facts about America in the last couple of years is that this gradual story of the decline of violence has seen a little uptick. So the murder rate has gone up in the United States after a long period of decline, both from the 1970s and from the start of the 20th century. And the last two or three years, it's picked up, 
And it's picked up because of three cities, Chicago, Baltimore, and Las Vegas. There are pockets, and, and within Chicago, two-thirds of the rise in the murder rate comes from five out of 70 police districts. It's unbelievably localized. The chances of most Americans being victims of that kind of violence are vanishingly small, but their sense of it, you know, when Donald Trump in his inaugural address talked about the carnage of American life, he was talking to his supporters, almost none of whom experienced that carnage, but many of whom fear it. The real carnage of American life is not people shooting each other. It's people killing themselves. So as you probably know, or maybe you don't know, America is the first society in the developed world where life expectancy is falling. It's not just the rate of life expectancy increases, declining, it's falling. But what's driving that is not gun death. What's driving that is the opioid epidemic, what people call poisonings and suicides, car crashes, bad diet. Now, people don't look at that and think, well, that's a symptom of a failing democracy. But that's where the carnage of American life is. And one of the things about all of those features of American life is that they barely register in politics. People don't get elected to be president of the United States talking about the number of fatalities on the roads. Trump talked a bit about the opioid crisis, but it's proved amazingly hard for him to do anything about it, or indeed anyone to do anything about it. Self-harm is a much greater problem than political violence in the United States. That is a very, very different society from the collapsing democracies of the 1930s. The other feature of 21st century violence, which is, I think, without parallel, is that a lot of it happens online. And that is real violence. I mean, we, people, again, can differ about this. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Yes, they will on Twitter. If you are the victim of an assault on Twitter, that is violence, and it often has physical effects. I mean, people are often genuinely damaged, and indeed, you know, it can be fatal, frankly. But there is no historical parallel for that. You can't, I think, look at a mob assault on Twitter and find evidence in the 20th century of how that kind of violence potentially leads to the death of democracy, because I, I think all of those parallels are an, an illusion. I think people are always reluctant to think this time is different because they feel that the people who say that are suffering from hubris. This time is different. I don't see where we look in the history of the 20th century for what to do about online violence. I'm sure there are lots of things we could do about online violence. We won't find the answers in the past. Ours are less violent societies. And the death of democracy in the 20th century was almost always a violent event. Secondly, we are so, so much richer than they were. We are so prosperous. And when I say we, I mean Britain, the United States, not just even Western Europe, but many countries in Eastern Europe now too, Japan. There's a, a famous sort of soundbite fact in political science, which is that no democracy has ever reverted to military rule when per capita GDP gets above $8,000 per person. And it's more or less true. It's very hard to find counterexamples. To military rule, other things can happen. We live in societies where we're so far beyond that threshold, we can't even remember what it looks like. 
You know, our per capita GDP in the societies I'm talking about is four, five, six times that amount. We, we are well beyond that. Yes, ours are very and increasingly unequal societies. And again, people say, well, what we're doing is we're going back to the Gilded Age of the late 19th century. We're going back to the last great period of inequality in democratic societies in the United States, in Britain, places like France. They were very unequal societies like ours has become. But they were very unequal poor societies. And we are a very unequal rich society. And I'm not in any sense downplaying the significance of inequality, which I think is a huge challenge for contemporary democracies. But when our democracies fail because of inequality, it will not be on that model. We have to imagine that it will be something different. Because what failure looks like in rich, unequal societies is very unlikely to be what failure looks like in poor, unequal societies. And third, and I think this is the most significant difference of all, and I think it's the one that's most neglected, we are so much older than they are. And when I say older, I mean we. I don't mean we live in old societies because the societies have been around forever. I mean the people who live in them are old. 1930s, even to some extent the 1970s, certainly the 1930s, Britain, America, France, Western Europe. These were societies that had a median age of about 25. Half the population was 25 and over, half the population was 25 and under. Parts of Europe now, the median age is 45. Half the population is 45 and older. Half the population is 45 and younger. Political violence is a young man's game. I mean, that's just a fact, I think, a historical fact. Fascism is a young man's game. Old people can embrace fascism and think it's great, but they need young people to do it. Old people don't do fascism. They just support it. <laughs> young people, young men, are the ones who do fascism. Weimar Germany was a society of young men, many of whom were suffering post-traumatic stress disorder. There is nothing comparable for, to that in our world. I'll tell you what's comparable to that in the world as a whole that we currently live in. But the United States is nothing like that. So let me give you one practical example that I hope illustrates this. Greece, contemporary Greece. So Greece at the moment, over the past 10 years, particularly over the past six or seven years, has lived through a crisis which has many echoes of the 1930s. And it's often drawn up that Greece has gone through a depression that has been deeper and longer than the Great Depression. So the Greek economy has shrunk by about a quarter. So Greece has suffered more in the past seven, eight years than the United States did in the Great Depression, than Britain did in the Great Depression. It's comparable to what Weimar Germany suffered. Greece, as you probably know, has had unbelievably high unemployment rates. So 25%, touching 25% unemployment, which is, again, 1930s levels, and 50% unemployment among 18 to 24-year-olds. So if this was the 1930s, 50% unemployment among 18 to 24-year-olds, I would draw you a graph and it would say 50% unemployment, 18 to 24-year-olds, arrow fascism. I would have no problem with that as a piece of historical causation. You cannot leave that number of people out of work and not expect 
something really violent to happen. But it hasn't. Why not? There aren't any young people in Greece. By historical standards, Greece is one of the highest median ages in the world. It's one of the oldest societies on earth. I think it's close to 47, 46, 47. There are way more pensioners in Greece than there are students. And many of these young people are living off their parents' and their grandparents' income, including their grandparents' pensions. In fact, many of them are living with their parents and their grandparents. That is not Weimar Germany. It's nothing like Weimar Germany. Greece has seen its economy contract by a quarter from something over 30,000 per person per capita GDP in dollars to something closer to 20,000 per capita GDP in dollars. So that's an unbelievable contraction. You know, that is a sort of social trauma on a scale that can break a society apart. But we have no historical parallels for it because we have never seen a society that rich shrink that fast. All of the historical comparisons are with societies that are much poorer. Greece has been through this incredible trauma. The murder rate in Greece is still lower than the murder rate in the United Kingdom. Greece in the 1970s, starting in the late 1960s, did go through a good old-fashioned collapse of democracy. There was a military coup. In the 1940s, there was a civil war. Greek politics was incredibly violent in the 1960s and 1970s. Greece still has a very well-funded army because Greeks still think that Turkey might invade at any moment. There will not be a military coup in Greece because Greece is no longer that kind of society. I just don't believe it. If it hasn't happened now, it's not going to happen. And I don't think it's going to happen. The fight in Greece is between bankers and accountants and European civil servants. It's not between soldiers and democratically elected politicians. And yet, I think it's also possible to ask the question, has Greek democracy already failed? Given what Greece has been through and the inability of democratic politicians to find a remedy for it. There is no historical parallel for that. We look at a society like contemporary America and we think it must have a lot in common with 1930s America or contemporary Britain with 1930s Britain because we're the same societies. So the contemporary society that most resembles 1930s America is Egypt. Egypt could relive the 1930s and maybe you might say it already has relived the 1930s. So American median age in 1930 was about 24, and in Egypt it's about 24. American per capita GDP in 1930 was about $4,000, and in Egypt it's about $4,000. Unemployment in Egypt has not reached Great Depression heights yet, but it's pretty high. Of course, Egypt in so many ways is nothing like the United States. But just the fact that if we want to make a comparison about who risks rerunning the 1930s, we shouldn't think because we share the same political institutions, we share the same heritage. It's us. It's not us. I don't believe it's us. I think there's only one historical society that possibly offers evidence of what we should expect from the crisis of our democracy. If we need a historical example, and I'm not sure we do, I think maybe all historical examples are false either false comfort or false fear-mongering here, but if there is one, it is contemporary Japan. 
Contemporary Japan is the closest to what it's at least possible that the future of democracy holds for these kinds of societies in the sense that democracy in Japan has been pretty dysfunctional for about 25 years. Japan has been kind of stuck in a political rut. It's had something close to zero growth until relatively recently. Um, it's really struggled to deal with the fundamental challenges and problems that it faces. But it remains an incredibly prosperous society, incredibly prosperous. It's an increasingly elderly society, so it's even older than Greece. It's a society that's no way going to replace its population. It's a society that does not wish for all sorts of reasons to accept immigration, which is the only solution to its problems. I mean, the Japanese people are not having kids. So at some point, something is going to have to replace the unborn Japanese. And there are really only two possibilities, one of which is immigration and the other is robots. And all the evidence is that the Japanese are betting on the robots, <laughs> which may well be the answer. I personally doubt it. <laughs> I think they may need to allow some immigration first. But there's at least a possibility that that's the way this is going. And there's no good looking to the 20th century for what that's going to mean for democracy. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure that's our future either, but it's at least a possibility. There is no historical parallel. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So let me say two or three more broad things, and then I'll, I'll offer you some conclusions. And I have no solutions, by the way. Just put that out there now. I don't know if you're meant to have solutions in these talks, but I don't. The other huge difference, and I can only touch on it here, and maybe we could talk about it because there's so much to say about it, and I've already touched on it a little bit, is this is the first crisis of democracy in the full-blown digital revolution age. Again, when we see it, the temptation is to find something familiar to compare it to. So when Hillary Clinton suspects that the Russians cost her the election by spreading lies, fake news, and propaganda, the word she reaches for to describe it, the chill it gives her is it's Orwellian. People say, this is kind of, are we straying into some kind of big brother society? Isn't this that mid-20th century nightmare of surveillance and completely untrustworthy ministry of truths that just tell lies. We look for the 20th century to give us our anchor point for this. Again, I don't think it's anything like that. I think it's a huge mistake to want to recognize the familiar threat in order to decide that it is a threat. Absolutely, I think digital technology is a threat to democracy. And I think there is nothing to compare it with. So we have to work it out for ourselves what kind of a threat it is. To put it very briefly, there's a, you know, there's a lot more to say about this, but the, the 
information and communication technology of the 20th century, I think, did work. I mean, basically, let's call it transmission technology, radios, televisions. It did work towards full frontal assaults on democracy. The classic model of the coup, which is not dead, there was one in Zimbabwe a few days ago, is soldiers take over the radio and TV stations and tell the people that their democracy has been temporarily suspended. And radio and television works very well for a direct frontal assault on democracy. It kind of aggregates the threats to democracy and locates them. Digital technology, it seems to me, disaggregates the threats to democracy and disperses them. It could easily threaten democracy, but it will threaten it in different ways at the same time in, and in ways that it's very hard to see the connections. And it's much more likely to gently pull democracy apart than rip it down. One reason, I think, for thinking that is, and again, I'm just going to do this in shorthand, I think the reason we value democracy is because it delivers two things to us. And I think we should value it for this reason. On the one term, it does produce social benefits over the long run. Democratic societies chop and change, and often in the moment they look like they're struggling. But the long history of democratic societies tends to indicate that various forms of social progress and indeed, frankly, prosperity are encouraged by certain forms of democratic governance. So it, it delivers benefits, and also it gives people dignity. That is, it allows them to express themselves. It allows them to be heard, to be taken seriously by politicians. It gives them an opportunity to complain and not to be silenced. Benefits and respect, I think, are the two things that democracy delivers. And if you put those two things together, it's an incredibly powerful combination. I don't think that digital technology threatens either of those two things directly. I think it probably enhances them. That is, I think this technology probably increases our prospects of finding collective solutions to our problems, using the wisdom of crowds, delivering on democratic benefits. And I think it also unquestionably enhances people's ability to express themselves, to give voice to their frustrations. But what it does, I think, is it takes those two benefits and it disaggregates them. So it actually pulls them apart so that they're now in tension with each other. So you have technical solutions to the world's problems through some of the democratic instruments of this technology in that it is collectivizing wisdom and knowledge and information. And you have the giving of voice of this technology, the fact that it allows people to express their identities in ways that were impossible even 10 years ago, to be themselves, to assert themselves. And all of the institutions that traditionally connect those things up, parliaments and political parties and shared media, are being thinned out by it. And again, I'm sorry I keep repeating this, but I think it's really important to say this. We have no idea what that means because there is nothing to compare that to. Or to give you another example, there is a huge amount of, suddenly from nowhere, people saying... Facebook is a great threat to democracy because Facebook was the vehicle through which the Russians managed to infiltrate the election, leading to the election of Donald Trump and so on. There may be some truth in that, but I don't think that's the main story here. I think Facebook is a threat to democracy, but it's, I don't think it's that kind of threat. And I suspect the smart people at Facebook, from Mark Zuckerberg down, are horrified by what they've discovered 
about the ways in which their beautiful toy can be used, and they will correct for it. Um, I would hope they would know how to correct for it, and I'm sure they probably do. I mean, it will be difficult for them, and the, the, their basic business model around advertising will need to be adjusted. But I would imagine they had the technical skill to prevent the scare stories about the 2016 election being the scare stories about the 2020 election. That's not the threat that Facebook poses. Facebook is a unique institution in human history, and it is simultaneously more democratic and less democratic than anything else of its scale and power. So Facebook is a network of something like 2 billion people. There has never been anything like that. And you could say that's the greatest experiment in democracy in world history. And it's a genuine public good. I would say another part of the reason why Greece has not collapsed into violence is Facebook. Because societies that are under real strain need abilities for people to self-create their own networks of support. And Facebook is free. For all of the terrible things about it, it remains free. It doesn't matter how much you're struggling, you can use it as a vehicle to engage with other people who can help you. And there's no question that this technology provides outlets for kinds of networks that protect and support struggling societies. And at the same time, Facebook is the most hierarchical organization in the world because it basically belongs to one man. I mean, I know it doesn't quite belong to one man, but it is Mark Zuckerberg's toy. It's, you know, it's simultaneously unbelievably democratic, and it's like a medieval court. And he's the prince, and he's like a prince. He's this boy who's got this kind of thing he's created which turns out to rule the world. When The Economist wanted a picture to kind of capture that power, they portrayed him as a Roman emperor with some thumbs up, thumbs down. But he's more powerful than a Roman emperor by far. It's not military power, political power, but it's information power. What, what does it mean to live in a society when an institution like that can simultaneously be more democratic than a democratic state and more autocratic than an autocratic state and have more money in its bank account than the American government does? It's not Weimar Germany. Last point, and then a couple of words by conclusion. And then the final difference, which I think is equally important, is if you look at the long history of democratic politics, democracies, particularly the, the ones that have survived, have had periods where they've got stuck. Uh, American democracy, British democracy, French democracy got very stuck at the beginning of the 20th century in the last great age of inequality. In the 1930s, many democracies didn't just get stuck, they fell, but the ones that survived came very close to the edge and looked like they were frozen. British democracy in the 1930s looked like it was just frozen in this position where it couldn't solve the problems it faced. A lot of people thought democracy was finished in the 1970s. And again, it looked like it just was inadequate to the task. And then in each case, a crisis came along that kind of shook democracies out of this. They were galvanized by worst-case scenarios. In some cases, the worst-case scenarios were wars, and I don't think that's an option for us. I mean, there is uh, Thomas Piketty's famous book about rising inequality, which tells the story of the 20th century, began very unequal, became much more equal from 1945 to 1975, it's drifted back to inequality. 
And he wants people to say, look, we did it before, we can do it again. We tamed inequality once, we can do it again. Except the way we tamed it last time was fighting a world war. There is no way that story makes sense without the two world wars. And that is not an option for us. There is no solution to our democratic problems, which is to fight a third world war. Sometimes it's wars, but sometimes it's other kinds of crises, national crises, economic crises, the Great Depression, the Great Stagflation of the 1970s, that kind of kick-starts a new round of democratic inventiveness, social cohesion. My fear is that those options are increasingly closed off to us too, in the sense that many of the crises we face are too big for democracy. So if the crises we face include... The, the impact of this new technology on not just employment, but a whole range of established social relationships, or if the crises that we face is the long-term crisis of climate change. There's a kind of tendency, I think, of democracies not to be galvanised by those threats, but to be paralysed by them. That the institutions still work, we still go through the motions of democratic life, we can reassure ourselves that we're changing government, if this doesn't work, we'll try something else. And if this doesn't work, we'll try something else. We continue to trust in democracy to address these problems. And it's that example or that way of thinking I gave you at the beginning, which is we continue to trust in this because it's going through the form of democratic politics long past the point where it's delivering the content, which is to make our lives safer, securer, and better. Some of the crises are too big and some of them are too small. I mean, we live in a world where it's, it's macro and micro. We live, you know, it's, a, it's almost an out-of-date phrase, but I think it's still really useful. We live in a long-tail world, a world in which there are multiple micro-experiences, and this is true in politics too, and then a few macro-experiences. The threats to the United States are, on the one hand, the opioid, the threats of violence, the opioid ec epidemic, where lots of people in forgotten, hidden communities in small ways in the privacy of their own homes are killing themselves. And the other threat is nuclear war with North Korea. One just paralyzes people. Very few people kind of are politically engaged by the thought of nuclear war with North Korea. They're just praying it's not going to happen and that man doesn't do it. And then part of the other side of the equation is just we don't have a collective experience of what's going on, what's fundamentally going wrong. The other epidemic of violence in North America is the prison system. So America is a society that imprisons more than 2 million members of its population, a vastly disproportionate number of young African-American men, partly on the principle out of sight, out of mind, which is not a good principle of democratic politics. And this has just drifted through American political life for a generation or more. The crises are too big or too small. So whatever happens, it will not be on the familiar pattern. My sense of how democracy might fail is, first of all, it will not fail like it failed in the past. And we should accept that. We should accept both the good news and the bad news about political violence. The good news is there is less of it. The bad news is that was traditionally how political change happened. So if we have closed off to ourselves the possibility of the main engine of political change, we will have to find another one. By far the bleakest book I've read in the last year is a book called The Great Leveller by an ancient historian called Walter Scheidel 
which is about the history of inequality from the Stone Age to 2017, in which he says, if you look at the entire history of the human species, there has never been a solution to the problem that is built into our societies that over time they become more unequal because the people with more accumulate more. There has never been a solution to that problem from the dawn of time that has not involved large-scale catastrophic violence. Does not have to be a war. It could be a plague. It could be a very, very violent revolution. The Russian Revolution was great for solving inequality. The Black Death was great for solving inequality. The First World War was great for solving inequality. The Second World War was great for solving inequality. None of those options are available to us as solutions to the problem of inequality. It won't happen through violence. It won't happen through coups. So one of the symptoms, it seems to me, of the dysfunctionality of contemporary American democracy is there will not be a coup in the United States. I don't believe. I mean, if I'm wrong about this, if, if while I'm speaking you're looking at your phones and it turns out that Trump is no longer a free man and one of those generals in his cabinet is sitting in the Oval Office and broadcasting on NBC and saying, we're doing this for your sake, people of America. I'm wrong. But assuming it hasn't happened while I've been speaking, I don't think it's going to happen. I don't know whether Trump will last four years. I don't know whether he'll be re-elected. I do think he will not be president after eight years. That would be a bad sign for American <laughs> democracy. I don't think that will happen. Um, but while he has been president, there has been constant talk that America's already had a coup. So Trump's opponents say that Trump's election was the coup. He's stolen American democracy. And Trump's supporters say the coup is against Trump. He is already a prisoner in the White House. The deep state has already prevented him from enacting the will of the people. Everybody thinks there's been a coup in the United States, and there hasn't been a coup in the United States. It's just someone got elected who doesn't know how to govern, and half the country hates him. <laughs> That's not a coup. That is a dysfunctional democracy. It will not be a coup. It will not be a war. We don't know what it will be. So... Th at the point where someone should say, now this is my solution. <laughs> Part of the issue here is I think what's come apart in democratic politics are the technical solutions and it as a vehicle of popular self-expression. And I think Silicon Valley embodies this in that many people in Silicon Valley have given up on democracy because they think their machines can come up with solutions faster. At the same time that these people in Silicon Valley are supercharging the kind of contestation of democracy through the networks that they've created that allow people rightly, and I think it's wonderful, to express themselves. But one of the things that's come apart in our politics is the idea of solutions to our problems and the idea that democracy is a vehicle for self-expression. So it cannot be a solution to that problem for a Cambridge professor to say, this is my technical solution to the problem of democratic politics. And that's part of the issue here. That produces the pushback from the people who want democracy to be an expression of their values and their views. There are no obvious solutions to this, but I think there's a kind of attitude that is important. And the thing that's provoked me to think about this and to write about it is that I was getting frustrated and worried by the fact that I thought the attitude was increasingly wrong. The wrong attitude 
is waiting for democracy to show the symptoms of failure that we can all agree are democracy failing. Waiting for the coup to become real. Waiting for the violence to reach the centre stage of politics. Waiting for the breakdown of civil order as the sign that this no longer works. So I reckon we could wait for that for 100 years and it might not come. And democracy will have failed long before it arrives because it will have been thinned out and hollowed out and emptied out. It will be form, not content. It will be solutions over here and anger over here. It will be constant back and forth. It will be a changing of the guard. All of these things are features of democratic politics and we could keep doing that for 100 years as well. And while that happens, democratic politics will have signally failed to address the problems, the challenges that we all face. So my only conclusion from this is that we're worrying about the wrong thing. Donald Trump is not going to turn into Hitler. Donald Trump is also not going to rescue American democracy by taking it back to its glorious past when America was great again. Mark Zuckerberg is a bigger threat to democracy than Donald Trump not because he has any evil designs on democracy at all. I imagine, insofar as he ever thinks about it, he thinks it's a lovely idea, and he would like to celebrate it. But he has created something that no one within or outside democratic politics understands how to bring under political control. And that thing that he's created is also a vehicle of democracy, so we could easily celebrate its democratic potential long past the point where it has hollowed out the institutions on which democracy depends. And that could all happen while we are either saying Donald Trump is our saviour or Donald Trump is going to turn into Hitler. Because my feeling is for the last two, three years, maybe longer, we've been worrying about the wrong thing. Thank you to the Cambridge Society for the application of research for recording this lecture. They organised lots of other interesting talks on subjects as diverse as tech startups, your DNA and the fossils of the Antarctic. You can find out more at csar.org.uk. David, Chris, Chris and Helen will be back next week and over the Christmas period to have a look back at 2017. If you enjoy Talking Politics, do please rate and review us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at tppodcast underscore for articles, links, blogs and more. Join us next week when David Runciman will be back talking politics. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.